there are some resolutions worth keeping. And I want to share with you some from Philippians today, some resolutions that I think are worthy. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 12. Let's start at verse 12. We'll read all the way through verse 16 of Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already fully mature, Paul says, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. That was his commitment to continue to reach for the prize, the goal, becoming like Christ, the reward in heaven, but also it should be our goal. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. So, some goals here. Paul certainly had goals of living for Christ. He kept those goals. He stayed faithful to those commitments. And while we're thinking about New Year's resolutions, while we're thinking about commitments, I think we would do well to evaluate these commitments that Paul had and see if we should not make those commitments our own. New Year's resolutions as we approach 2019. The first one I think is worthy of our attention, worthy of our commitment, is that we should just simply renew our commitment to Christ. There are times in life where you make a huge rededication. You may have a major life transition or God does something incredible in your life. You start a new beginning, but I think there are periods throughout the year, especially as the year begins, it's a good time to evaluate our commitment to Christ and to renew that commitment. We should all do that. What we're talking about here is spiritual inventory, taking inventory of our lives, taking a real honest look in the mirror and allowing the Holy Spirit, not just evaluating ourselves and our own ability to do that, but allowing the Holy Spirit to do that for us. Paul has what I call a spiritual dissatisfaction. It's not that he's not content, but he's not satisfied with where he is in terms of his spiritual growth. He's never satisfied. He knows that as long as he's alive, he's got room to grow. As long as he's breathing, he will never fully be like Christ in this life. He is a work in progress, which we all are. He understands that, and he's never satisfied with where he is spiritually because He always wants to grow. Look again at verse 12. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or am already fully mature. He knows there's room to grow. He never allowed himself to get comfortable with where he was spiritually. He never got to the point to where he thought, hey, I've arrived. I've learned all I can learn. I've grown as much as possible. It didn't matter where he was in life in terms of his spiritual walk with Christ. He always knew there was room to grow. Now, again, it's not to say Paul was discontented. We know Philippians 4, if you go ahead to chapter 4, verse 12, he said, I know both how to have little and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. He was fully satisfied in Christ. He was fulfilled in his relationship with Christ and with everything that Christ provided him, he was satisfied but he was not satisfied with where he was in terms of spiritual growth. He was always striving, always pushing forward, wanting to achieve another level of growth, getting closer to Christ, growing more intimate in his relationship. We should all have 
that same attitude, being satisfied with Jesus, but being dissatisfied with our spiritual growth. I'm not talking about being discontented. We should be content with where we are, with what God's called us to do. We should be satisfied and fulfilled in our relationship to Christ, but we should never get to the point to where we feel like, hey, I've, I'm, I'm, I've grown as much as I can. I'm arrived. We should be dissatisfied. There are two extremes here that we need to be careful of. We run the risk of, number one, making ourselves look better than we are, or number two, making ourselves look worse than we are. The one person is what, what I would call the activist, so to speak, or, or the self-promoter. I'm arrived. I've, I look better than, say, this other person over here. And a lot of Christians do that. They feel satisfied with where they are spiritually because they're comparing themselves to somebody else. Well, at least I'm better than him or her. I may be doing these things wrong, but at least I'm not doing that. Well, Paul didn't do that. He never... He never compared himself to other people, he always compared himself to Jesus. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, there's really no comparison, is there? I mean, we'll never be like him in this life, and that's the point he's, he's making, is that as long as we're alive, there's growth to be achieved, to be experienced. We're never going to be like Jesus until we see Jesus face-to-face in heaven. That's when we can say we've arrived, when we've actually arrived. And so the danger is to, to, to feel better about myself than I should in terms of where I am spiritually. But the other extreme is a danger too, to, to feel worse about myself than I should. God doesn't want us to feel terrible about ourselves. I mean, we should feel guilty when we sin. We should be, feel conviction when we should be under conviction. But we shouldn't go around with a horrible self-image either. That's not God's plan. We're valuable if... For no other reason, because God valued us enough to send Jesus to die for us. And so he, he doesn't want us to feel worse about ourselves than we should. But some people do that. Uh, in Revelation, you see both extremes shown. In Revelation chapter 3, you see the church at Sardis who thought that they were alive, but they were actually dead. They thought that they were rich, but they were actually poor. In Revelation chapter 2, you see the Laodicean church who thought they were poor, but they were actually rich. And so you see in Scripture examples of this, and we see examples of this in our lives, in different walks of life, and different people we know. Maybe you've experienced that. You, at a point in your life, thought you were more mature than you, than you actually were, and, and maybe other times you thought less of yourself when God wanted to use you to do something incredible. He values you enough to use you for His kingdom work. And so we need to avoid those two extremes. Self-evaluation can be dangerous, and we certainly need to avoid the danger of thinking worse of ourselves than, than we should. And, and part of that is just as followers of Christ, as we're living for Him, we have to learn to let go of the things in the past. One of the reasons I think Christians struggle with valuing who they are and, and their place, understanding their place in kingdom work, is that, that we tend to have a hard time letting go of things in the past. We, God's forgiven us, but we have a hard time forgiving ourselves sometimes. We're struggling with things that either happened before we were saved or things that we've been forgiven of since we've been saved. And God has forgotten those sins, but, but Satan's using those as evidence against your ability, your worthiness to serve the Lord. The truth is, none of us are worthy. The only reason we're worthy is because Jesus makes us worthy. He cleanses us of sin, and because of his righteousness, we are now worthy. And so sometimes we've got to get past our past. Some people struggle with that, and, and, and that, that's a good piece of advice. 
I think, is to let go of our past and live for the Lord in the present. I mean, the, the past is gone. Now, we, we shouldn't completely forget the past. There's value in the past. There are things that we can learn from the past. But we, if we constantly beat ourselves up over things in the past, we'll never accomplish anything for the Lord in the present or in the future. Again, we can learn things from the past, and we should. If nothing else, we should learn from our mistakes so we don't repeat those mistakes. You've heard the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, if we're willing to learn from past mistakes, that will help us avoid being insane, doing things over and over again, repeating those mistakes. So we should learn from the past. It informs our present, and we build on the past in order to achieve things in the future. And so as individuals, as a church, the past is valuable, but we have to leave the past and move into the future. So as we begin a new year, this last Sunday in 2018, we need to think about where we are spiritually, evaluate where we are spiritually, and evaluate whether or not we need to, to, to make some changes. We all have some growing to do. Paul said this to the Romans. He said in Romans 8, 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've been freed from that. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And he said also to the Corinthians in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. We've been free from the past, so we live in grace in the present. And we have the ability to live for God now and in the future. So we need to evaluate. Evaluate our spiritual maturity. Be willing to let go of the past. Learn from the past, but let go of the past. Live for God in the, in the present and, and fulfill his plan for our lives. Live for Jesus today. This will allow us to keep our second New Year's resolution that I think is worthy of making. And that is that we need to keep our focus on Christ. We need to renew our commitment to Christ. And then if we're going to keep that commitment, all these New Year's resolutions, they fall by the wayside. How do we keep them? Well, we need to keep our focus on Christ. We got to make sure that we are focused on Him and that that focus stays on Him, that we don't get distracted by the many options that we have to be distracted by in our lives, keeping our focus. There's something that, that came out a few years ago. I actually read an article about it before it came out. It's, it's a little device called the tile. Have y'all seen these? I've got a picture. These little devices that you can buy, and you can, you can put it on your keychain. You can stick it to your iPad. You can stick it to your computer. You can put it on your dog's collar if you want to. These little tiles are designed to go with an app that you load on your phone or an iPad or another device. And as long as you're within 50 or 100 feet of the tile, you can find it. It tells you where it's at. And if you're not, it can log. It logs the last GPS location that the tile was so that you've at least got a starting point. If you're not within 50 or 100 feet, you can go to that last location and begin to look, and maybe you will pick it up from there. But you have to have the app, of course, to find the tile. It shows you if you've lost your keys, if you've lost your dog, if you've lost whatever that the tile is attached to, as long as you've got the app, you can find it. Well, this morning, maybe you haven't lost your keys, but maybe you've lost your focus. We do that. We, we tend to lose our focus. Maybe you've lost your focus. And, and my hope this morning is not that, that I'm going to give you all the answers you need today, but that this message will serve as sort of a tile for you to help 
you refocus, to help me refocus. As we close out this year of 2018, as we prepare to begin a new year, 2019, that we will refocus our attention where it needs to be, our hearts and our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if not, we're going to continue to wonder, and we won't have direction. We won't have purpose. Focus our attention on Christ. That one thing that Paul talks about, he talks about it in verse 13. One thing I do, not several things, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. I've said this before, but I think one of the things that we should do, especially when evaluating New Year's resolutions, one thing that's desperately needed is that we need to simplify our lives a little bit. Can y'all agree with me on that? I mean, we, we are, are in the, the, the busiest culture. I mean, I've told you, there, there are studies that show we determine people's value by how busy they are. If you're not busy, you're not as important as somebody who is busy. So we fill up our schedules with all this stuff. And, and hey, it happens to us too. Four kids, different activities, different things of that nature. And, and, and it's so easy to get busy. But sometimes I think we need to take a step back. We need to evaluate what all is going on in our lives and look at, hey, are there some things that I, can, that I can stop doing or set aside that I don't have to do in order to simplify my life? If nothing else, in terms of where our focus is, we need to simplify and focus first and foremost and in everything on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I, I, I pursue this one thing. He's using an athletic image as he does a lot. An athlete who excels, who wins, does it by focusing on one thing, one sport, and excelling in that sport. An athlete's not successful if he attempts to try to be good at a lot of different things. Now, there are those few athletes, and you've seen them, the Bo Jacksons who excel in several sports, but those guys are few and far between. Somebody who's successful, who wins, focuses on one thing, trains in that area, becomes good at that one sport or that competition or whatever, and, and that's why they win, because they dedicate themselves completely to that sport, to training, to becoming good in that area. And so that's the idea Paul is, 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 is trying to bring up here, is that we focus not on many things, but on one thing. What is that one thing? Well... He goes on, he talks about that goal, that prize in Christ. Getting to the end of our life, which you fast forward and see Paul did, was able to say, I've, I've, I've finished the race. Now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness, but not just for me, for all who long for his appearing. So the, the one thing is completing this life and doing it faithfully. Fulfilling the purpose that God has for us. Focusing on Christ and finishing the race and receiving the prize, and not allowing anything to distract us. If you think back to Nehemiah, we went through the book of Nehemiah. There were enemies that tried to distract Nehemiah, and what was his response? He said, the work I'm doing is too important. I'm not going to come down off the wall. I can't. I'm focused on this task, what God has called me to do, and I'm not going to let anything distract me from that. James, he said in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If we divide our loyalties, if we try to focus on a lot of different things, then we're going to be unstable. This is true individually. This is true as a church. We can try to do a lot of different things and do them 
kind of well, or we can focus on a few things and do them really well and, and focus on the same purpose and be united in purpose and in mission and do that really well. That's why it's so important to have vision. That's why it's so important to understand our mission, which next week we will begin a five-week series on what I believe is God's vision for this church. And we're going to explore that together. But in all of that, individually, corporately, we need to focus on the one thing that Paul focused on. We need to focus on how we live. Paul uses that word pressing, pressing forward. That's the idea of running in order to grab hold of something, giving it your all, giving it maximum effort to try to reach whatever it is you're trying to reach. And of course, we know for Paul, it was finishing the race, receiving the prize. He was all in for Jesus. There are two ways that we should be living when we think about this. One is that we live for Jesus. Everything that we do, everything that we say, our attitudes, our actions, everything that we do should be for his glory and for his honor. So the question is, am I living that way? Is my life glorifying the Lord? Is it pleasing to God? Am I serving him? Am I living for Jesus with everything that I have? The other way we live is by Jesus. We live for him, but we can't live for him without him. We need him. We are desperately dependent on him, whether we realize it or not. And we need to recognize our dependence on him. The reason a lot of Christians aren't successful in fulfilling God's purpose is that they're trying to do it in their own strength, in their own power. We can't. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how to be a pastor on my own. I don't know how to be a dad or a husband on my own. I can't do that. I'm not... I'm not equipped to do that on my own. None of us are equipped to do the things that God's called us on our own. We need his power, his strength in our lives. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we look around at where we are today as a church, as where we are individually, we, we need to ask ourselves, are we allowing Jesus to be at the center of our lives, and are we allowing him to have control of all of our lives, every aspect of our lives? We use the phrase, Lord of our life. He's the Lord of our life. Well, being Lord means he's Lord over our lives. And if he truly is Lord, then he's in control. He calls the shots. We simply listen and obey. So is Jesus in control? He has to be if we're going to keep our focus on him and live for him. So let's make a commitment to do that and how we live focus on Christ and how we live. We need to look at how we serve. Paul was striving. He was reaching. He was doing his best to reach that prize. And what we see in Paul's life is God got a hold of a man who was sold out, radical, showed incredible zeal for persecuting Christians. That was Saul. God saved him. Jesus transformed his life. And Paul had the same Zeal, he had the same commitment, but he just directed that toward winning people to Christ instead of persecuting Christians. The same zeal, the same commitment, the same enthusiasm, call him radical if you want to, but he showed that same commitment to winning people to Christ as he did for persecuting them. Paul had gifts and abilities and a personality that God had designed him with to be used for his glory. And Paul was completely and totally committed to that. The truth is, we need to look at our faithfulness as individual laborers. How do we stack up as servants? John 9, verse 4, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming 
when no one can work. Night is coming. Jesus will return one day. And, and our opportunity for doing work for him on this earth will end. So we need to throw ourselves into the Lord's work, into serving him, fulfilling the purpose, the mission that he's given us. So we need to look at our faithfulness, our desire to do his work. Our labor level of labor speaks to our level of our faith, the level of our faith. In James 2.18, we're told, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith from my works. No, works don't save us, but if we are saved, our salvation will be evident in what we do, in our works. Our works will prove our salvation, especially from the perspective of others. Again, two extremes here. The extreme in Christian living, one is I must do it all. Some people have the perspective of I have to do everything, and that's life in general. And the other perspective, the other extreme is God must do it all. Both are are dangerous, and both will fail. I mean, some of you watched football yesterday, and and if you've ever been on a football team, if, if you got into the huddle and the quarterback said, okay, guys, listen, don't listen to the coach, I've got this. I'm doing it all. Well, that's not a good quarterback. A good quarterback follows the leadership of his coach. On the other extreme, if the quarterback said, okay, guys, y'all don't do anything, we're just going to let the coach handle it. We're just going to stand here. Both is going to fail. Both are going to fail. In life, in Christian living, if, if I have the perspective, you've heard the phrase, let go and let God. It's a nice catchy phrase, but it really doesn't hold water because, yes, God's in control. He's all powerful, but we have a part in this. He's not going to do everything for us. He could, but he's not going to. Just like I'm not going to do everything for my kids. They'll never learn anything. They'll never grow. Having that attitude of I'm just going to let God handle everything and not do anything is is just as dangerous as trying to do it all myself and not letting him do anything in my life. There's a healthy balance that we have to have. We depend on him, but we have to, to do the work that he's called us to do. And the key here, the key is understanding that we need to let God work in us, mold us and shape us so that he can work through us. In order to work through us, God works in us so that he might work through us. The Holy Spirit has to be in us. If we're going to be in God's will, then first God has to work through us. He has to work in us before he can work through us. We're never going to be all that God wants us to be until we first submit to him and allow him to do his work inside of us. It's just, it's going to be vain effort. We might get some things right. We might do some good things, but we're never going to be all that God wants us to be. As we commit ourselves to spiritual disciplines, though, as we read our Bible, as we spend time with God, he works inside of us. That's how he works in us. And that, in doing that, he's preparing to work through us to accomplish his work. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, Paul says to Timothy, he says, "...had nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, but rather train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit. Training just to train physically has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise in the present life and also for the life to come." So we continue, we press toward that goal, we let God work in us so that he can work through us, and we become more like him. We're, we're going toward the same goal that, that Paul is, and we do it by his power, the power of Jesus, not our own strength, but his power. And we keep our focus on, on Christ. And then we need to, to look at how we love. We look at how we live, we need to look at how we serve, we need to look at how we love as well. 
As we look at where we are individually, I, I think it's, it's, it's a good exercise periodically just to, to evaluate, am I displaying the love of Christ in my life? I mean, as I go through life, am I, am I practicing the same love that Jesus has shown me? Is the love of God evident in my life? And if it is, it will come out in this way. The greatest command, the second greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If the love of God is present in my life, I will love God with not just with my words, but the way that I live, and I will love other people. It'll be evident in everything that I do and everything that I say, how I treat people. The love of God will be displayed. So as we take a look at where we are in our relationship to Christ, we evaluate, is our focus on Christ? Are there some things, maybe some of these areas that, that we're, we're not doing so well in? Some of them we're doing pretty well in. There's room for improvement. We see some areas maybe where we're failing miserably. I don't know, but if, the, if those areas become evident, if those failures become evident, what we can know is that God can give us the ability to remedy those problems. He can help us get right in those areas. But how, when we evaluate our lives, how do we measure up in terms of our focus and how we live, how we serve, how we love? What about the church, this church, as a New Testament church? When God looks at Wall Highway, is he pleased with what we're doing? I think overall, yes, but there's always room for improvement, just like in my life. I hope God is pleased with me, but I know there's room to grow. And so we always need to be looking for areas to grow. I don't know the answer to all the questions. I can't do an honest evaluation for you or even for this church as a whole, but I know that God knows, and I know he knows what we need to become what he wants us to be, to renew our commitment. We need to renew our commitment to Christ. That's the beginning point, focusing on him, to, to strive for that one thing like Paul, that, that prize that's promised, live our lives in a way that shows that we're straining, that we're running to reach that prize, to take hold of it. And as we do that, we need to remember our third commitment, our third resolution, and that's that we need to maintain our discipline in Christ. We keep our focus on Him. We've committed, we've renewed our commitment. Now we've, our focus is on Him. We're going to keep our focus on Him. And if we ever get distracted, we're going we're to get our focus back on Him. The idea is to not get distracted. And in order to do that, that's going to require discipline. We've got to maintain discipline. Again, an athlete, a good athlete is disciplined. He gives up some things maybe he or she wants to do and, and, and commits himself to, to doing the things necessary to become to excel in whatever sport they're participating in. And we, as believers, we are disciplined. Look at verse 15 again. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Let us walk by the same rule, the King James says. Live up to whatever truth. King James says, let's walk, let's obey the same rules. And there are rules in Scripture. It's not enough just to run hard. Just running hard isn't going to win the race. I mean, you, if you don't train for, for, for any length of time at all and you enter a race, what are your chances of even finishing the race, much less winning it? You can run as hard as you want to, but those people who have trained, who have natural ability, but who have trained, who have worked, who have disciplined themselves, they're going to do better, especially when it comes to a marathon. And we've, we've talked about how the Christian life is more of a marathon. It's not a sprint. I mean, it's a lifelong journey. And, and unless we train properly, we're never going to finish the race. And training requires discipline. 
And so we need to, to understand the analogy, of course. Again, the Greek Olympic Games, Paul's using this as an analogy. And, and those athletes, they had to follow the rules. The, the, the judges of the Olympic Games were very strict. Any infringement on the rules, you disqualified yourself. You didn't lose your citizenship as a Greek citizen. You may have disgraced it. You, you were still a Greek citizenship. A Greek citizen, you, you still maintain that citizenship, but you couldn't participate in the games, much less have, a, have an opportunity to win the prize. And so the, the athletes were very careful to follow the rules. They didn't want to get disqualified. And the analogy is clear here. We as believers, we don't want to be disqualified for service. We're not going to lose our salvation, but we can lose the opportunity, the privilege of serving, the opportunity to win the prize, that one thing that Paul's striving for. We need to follow the spiritual rules that God lays down for us in his word. I want to show you a picture of a guy named Simon Beck. This is Simon Beck. He, he does something pretty interesting. He creates these works of art in the snow. You can kind of see it behind him. There's another picture after this that shows it a little bit better. These works of art, pretty incredible. They look like, like elaborate crop circles or something in the snow. He creates these works of art, and he does it by foot. He uses his snowshoes one step at a time, to create these patterns in the snow where if you're standing in the midst of them, you, you don't really see them. But when you, when you get from a different perspective, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Beautiful works of art that he creates. It takes time. Sometimes it takes up to nine hours to create something like this. Again, he does it with his snowshoes one step at a time in a pattern. It's tedious. It's time-consuming. But once he's done, from the right perspective, you see a pretty incredible image, don't you? The Christian life can be pretty tedious. It can take time. It's going to take a lifetime. It can be hard at times. I mean, following the Lord's not always easy. And anybody that tells you it is, they're trying to sell you a bill of goods. It's not. I mean, it's great. It's worth it. Don't get me wrong. The benefits far outweigh the hassles, but it's not always easy. It can be time-consuming. It can be tedious. But from the right perspective, from God's perspective, when my life is finished, what's left will be a beautiful picture because it'll be a picture that he created one day at a time, one step at a time as I follow him, as I stay disciplined and following the rules that he's given me and following his, his way for my life. Romans 14, 10 and 12, Paul says, you, but you, why do you criticize your brother? Or why do you all look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal or the judgment seat, the bema of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That tribunal, that word is, for judgment seat is the same word that's used to describe the podium, the Olympic podium where the athletes would come and receive their prize if they, they finished the race and if they won. It was, it was the judgment seat, so to speak. They judged who the winner was. Whoever the judge was would judge who the winner, the winners were. And so the idea, again, this athletic image is, is that if we run the race, if we finish the race, all of us one day are going to stand before the judgment seat, the judgment of the righteous if we're believers, not the judgment of the wicked, but we're still going to stand before the judgment seat. And while our eternity is secure, our works are still going to be judged and we'll be rewarded accordingly. Or we won't receive a reward. Now, again, I don't know what those rewards are, but Scripture is very clear about that, and Paul is talking about that here. We're going to stand before the beam of the judgment seat, the tribunal. And, and like Paul, I want to be found faithful. Don't you? 
I want, to, I want to know that when I get there, that I will receive a well-done, good, and faithful servant, and whatever that reward is, that I will have it. Heaven is, is wonderful. Having your eternity secure is wonderful, but, but God deserves everything that we have, and he deserves our faithfulness, and it takes discipline to maintain faithfulness. Bible history is filled with people who started well but didn't finish well. And they didn't lose their salvation. I mean, I, I, I don't believe that for a minute. Scripture doesn't teach that. Salvation is never in my hands. God does it from beginning to end. And if, if it was in my hands to begin with, I could save myself. I can't do that. I mean, salvation, gaining it's not in my hands. Losing it's not in my hands. But the Bible's filled with people that started well but didn't finish well because they got distracted. And they don't receive the same rewards as those like Paul who did finish well. And so we need to make sure that we, we strive for that prize and we maintain our discipline and our faithfulness. How many of you ever heard of the Yule Log program? Have you ever seen this? It's been around since 1966. It's a program, and I don't know what channel it comes on. I saw it advertised. I think you can get it on Netflix. If you're that bored that you just need to watch a roaring fire, or maybe you don't have a fireplace and you want to create the image, that was the original idea. The, the CEO of, of WPIX, I believe it was in New York in 1966, he wanted to give a gift to, to people in New York who lived in apartments or in a house that didn't have fireplaces. So he created this program that would, that would air New Year's Eve, Christmas Day, I mean Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, that was basically just a picture of a fire. And it's still the same today. You can, you can see the Yule Log program. Google it later. You'll see I'm telling you the truth if you've never heard of it. The idea was that if you didn't have a fire, you could create a fire. And for his employees at the news station, he would air this during the morning news so that they would be able to be at home with their families. It was kind of a Christmas gift to them. The program stayed pretty much the same for several years until a few years ago, from 1966 until about three years ago. I think it was three years ago. A group, and you'll love the name, the group's name is Nerdist. That's their group. Their name is the Nerdists. I don't know. I'm sure it's well-earned, but nonetheless, that's their name. And they came up with a Yule Log 2.0. And here's what they did. They took a Chinese high-powered laser. They took the Yule Log concept. They took this laser and started a roaring fire. They used the laser to maintain a fire. That wasn't enough for them. They took a robotic arm because they didn't want to burn their own arms off and they melted ornaments like Santa ornaments and whatever else that they could think of to put in the fire. That was the Yule Log 2.0. But their slogan, I'm reading this article and, 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 I, and their slogan at the end of it caught my attention. For their Christmas wish for you is may your evenings be merry and all of your fires be started by a high-powered laser. That's probably not a good idea because I know I myself could not be trusted with a high-powered laser, and some of you probably fall into that same category. So I'm not going to wish that for you. If you want to seek out that, that's fine. I'm not so sure about high-powered lasers, but here, here's what I do wish for you. Along the same vein, I guess, in terms of having a fire in our lives, I pray that your lives will be joyful, not just merry, but joyful, and that the fire in your heart will be started and maintained, not by a high-powered laser, but by the power of Christ's presence in your life. If we want to stay faithful in the year to come and beyond, we need to renew our commitment to Jesus. We need to focus on Him and Him alone and maintain our focus. And if we're going to do those two things, keep our commitment, keep our focus, we need to maintain discipline. It's going to take discipline. 
God gives us the ability. He gives us the strength, but he does require that we obey him. He gives us choice. He gives us a responsibility in his service. And we have to have the discipline to run the race and to finish the race, just like Paul did. It'll be exciting if we do. The race, I guarantee you, if you commit yourself to running this race individually as a church, I can't promise you a lot of things, but what I can promise is that it will be challenging and it will be exciting. As we run together, it will be exciting. Seeing God fulfill incredible things in my life, in your life, in our lives corporately, if we stay focused, if we're committed to Christ, if we're disciplined, if we stay focused on the mission that he's given us, there's no telling what he will do in and through us. Even more than that, though, it'll be exciting and fulfilling when we stand before that judgment seat, when our lives are over. We stand before the tribunal and we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. As exciting as serving the Lord can be in this life, it pales in comparison to the fulfillment of standing before our Savior and receiving the same crown, the same reward that Paul received and promised was available to all who faithfully serve the Lord. That was what motivated Paul. And I pray that at the end of this year, this last Sunday of 2018, going into 2019, I pray that our motivation will be the same as Paul's. This one thing, to finish the race, to fulfill my purpose, God's purpose for me, and to receive the prize. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us a place in your work and your service, and your kingdom work, for allowing us to all be a part of it. We know that we need to commit ourselves to you. We need to focus on you and maintain that focus. We need to be disciplined. We need to follow the spiritual rules that you've given us. And if we're going to do that, we desperately need your power, your strength working in us and through us. We cannot do it on our own, and we know that. Individually, as a church, We'll never keep these resolutions without you giving us the ability, the strength, and the power to do it. And, and, and we know that's not possible unless we have a relationship with you, unless we're saved by grace. And, and I pray that if there's somebody here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, who, who Jesus have not accepted you as Savior of their life, the only Savior, the only way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, Lord, I pray that, that during this time of commitment that they would come and allow me to share with them how to make that most important decision. Lord, for others here today, for all of us, as we evaluate our lives, as we close out one year, begin another, as we evaluate where we are spiritually, I pray that we would be challenged, but, but that we, we wouldn't just think about what we should do. We would make the commitments necessary to become what you want us to be, to be faithful, to run the race like Paul did that we would all perform a spiritual evaluation and, and allow you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us and show us the areas that need to be improved. Lord, there may be other decisions you're leading individuals to make. During this time of decision, I pray that we would just listen to your voice, that we would respond to your voice, that we would be obedient, that we would be faithful as you are always faithful. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?